You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to the latest news podcast for May, where we cover all the latest legislative and regulatory developments advisors need to be aware of. Now, I'm your host, Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me today, I've got three members of my team. I've got Tim Sanderson. G'day, Tim. Hi, Craig. Julie Fox. Say, Julie. Hi, Craig. And Peter Wheatland. G'day, Pete. Hi, Craig. So as we approach the end of the financial year, we thought we'd do a summary of what's changing as of the 1st of July. And to kick it all off, I'm going to start with Pete. Pete, SG rate is increasing from 10.5% to 11% on the 1st of July. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. So it's part of the, the normal scheduled increase to the SG rate. Um, it's continuing to increase each financial year until it reaches 12%. Um, Even though the SG is increasing from 10.5% to 11%, the concessional contribution cap is remaining the same at $27,500. And so it's important for advisors to review their concessional uh, contribution strategies to make sure that clients don't inadvertently exceed their concessional contribution caps. Okay, true. Now, one issue I remember from last year is in relation to determining how much SG employees must pay where the SG payment is made in July for work that was performed in June. So can you give us a quick recap of how that works? Yeah, so basically the way that it works is the SG rate is determined um, in the year that the SG is actually paid. Um, it's not determined uh, by the rate um, in the year that the person actually performed their duties. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if someone, you know, if the employee worked in June 2023, let's say, but they weren't paid their SG until July 2023, then the employer would have to pay um, SG of 11% rather than 10.5% on those earnings. Okay, so if we get paid monthly, so, um, you know, just once a month and it's on the first day of each month after the previous month, so if I'm going to get paid on the 1st of July for all the work that was done in June, you're telling me I'm getting 11% rather than 10.5%. That's correct, yeah, even though, um, you know, the, the work was done in June. Okay, true. All right. Now, will the SG increase impact all employees the same? Uh, Not necessarily. Um, The impact for employees will differ depending on whether their remuneration is defined as salary plus SG Mm -hmm. or salary inclusive of SG in Mm -hmm. their employment contract. Um, So where the contract stipulates a specific salary plus SG, then the employee's salary should remain constant and the SG rate will simply increase from 10.5 to 11. Um, However, some employees may have a package figure in their contract, which is inclusive of salary and SG together, and those individuals will be entitled to the increased SG rate. However, the employer may choose to reduce the employee's take-home pay by a corresponding amount 
in order to maintain uh, the same package figure inclusive of SG. So fabulous. So, you know, because of an increase in SG, I get a pay cut. Is that, is that what you're telling me? Potentially, yeah. If yeah. the employer chooses to do that, they may be within their rights to now, do that. Now, I suppose if if that happens, if I get a pay cut because of that, then my SG potentially also goes down. Uh, it wouldn't go down um, on no. gross terms, but uh, because their salary has reduced, the 11% rate would just apply to that uh, lower uh you know, lower figure, I suppose. Right, yep. Oh, okay. So it's not as simple as if you're on that that all-inclusive salary amount, then the figures are going to jump around a bit to make sure that, okay, your salary goes down a bit, your SG goes up a bit because of the increase in SG, but also taking into account the salary cut, but it's all got to get back to. So net-net neutral, the client will be in the same situation. So if you had an all-inclusive package for $100,000, they're still going to get paid $100,000. It's just how that gets made up is is going to change a little bit, a bit, a bit right. less salary, a bit more. Yeah, okay, terrific. Now, given that concessional contribution cap is remaining at 27.5 and SG may be using up more of the cap, what are some of the strategies that uh, we think we might need to review as a result? Yeah, the, I guess the main strategy is really if the client has a salary sacrifice agreement in place um, with their employer, then it's important to review how much is being salary sacrificed mm-hmm. and whether that needs to be reduced slightly to avoid exceeding the cap, particularly if, if they're aiming to, to maximise their caps and they're already kind of you know on the line. Um, alternatively, if um, there might be other situations where the advisors recommended uh, regular personal deductible contributions. Um, for instance, on a monthly basis, continue to make a PDC of a set amount each month. Mm-hmm. Um, those arrangements should be reviewed as well. Um, with personal deductible contributions, it's not so much of a risk of exceeding the concessional contribution cap because the, the client could generally just adjust how much they claim as a tax deduction. Um, and that could avoid, uh, you know, excess concessionals. Mm-hmm. But it'd be good to review the scenario anyway, just in case the client doesn't want to make, uh, you know, contributions to super if they're not going to claim a deduction for them. Okay, yep. Um, and what if the client has carry forward concessional contributions available? Yeah, so if they're eligible to use the carry forward concessional contribution provisions, then that might avoid having excess concessional contributions but it would still be worthwhile reviewing the client scenario, um, particularly if they were planning to use those carry forward concessions um, in another financial year. Okay. All right. Well, I think that probably covers it. Thanks, Pete. Okay. Thanks, Greg. Okay. Moving on to minimum pension payments. So 1 July is just around the corner, which is the date that account balances and a client's age are used to calculate minimum required pension payments for account-based pensions for the financial year ahead. Now, as we know, in recent years, the government halved the required minimum pension drawdown requirement due to that lovely little thing called COVID. Now, however, that is legislated to come to an end on 30 June this year, unless, of course, 
the government decides to extend that for an extra year. But they didn't announce that in the federal budget, so we're kind of thinking that that is unlikely, but it's always a risk. Now, what this means is the minimum pension payments will return to their standard levels. Now, here to discuss this and some of the implications of this change is uh, Julie Fox, one of my senior technical services managers. G'day, Julie. Hey, hey. Now, starting off at a high level, which pensions do we need to worry about here? Um, well, the minimum pension payments are required for account-based pensions, transition to retirement pensions and term allocated pensions. Now, each of those income streams require a minimum to be paid as pension payments during a financial year, and they all had their minimum requirements halved since uh, July 2019, and these will are the ones that will return to the standard minimums from the 1st of July this year. Okay, so let's look at a really simple example of an account-based pension first. Let's say account-based pension of conveniently exactly $200,000 on the 1st of July and let's say the member is, I don't know, let's say age 67. Yeah, so so in this circumstance for the new 2023-24 financial year, that member's minimum pension will be based on their age, 67, and they'll be required to draw down a minimum of 5% of their account balance. So in 2023-24, they have to draw down a minimum of $10,000 in pension payments over the financial year in that scenario. Now, if, if the member had been drawing down the minimum in the current financial year, 22-23, it was only 2.5% drawdown requirement. So they would have only been required to draw down $5,000 over the current year. Um, that's if their account balance had been $200,000 back on the 1st of July 2022 as well. Um, so that is the basics of how it would work in a scenario like that. But we also have to take into account that the minimum rates increase with age and there's seven different age brackets for the minimum drawdowns. So... Mm -hmm. If the member had actually been 64 on the 1st of July 2022, their minimum drawdown rate um, for the current financial year would have been 2%. Their minimum rate will rise to 5% on the 1st of July because they've not only had the pension minimum double, but they've entered the next age bracket, which requires a higher drawdown. So you can see in some cases the minimum pension payments may actually more than double. So obviously this change is going to have a big impact on clients who were drawing less than the normal standard minimum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, members drawing down the minimum will need to decide whether they will be able to use the extra pension payments or decide whether to, um, you know, whether they need to reinvest that extra income perhaps back into super accumulation if they're under 75 or maybe into alternative non-super investments if that's more suitable. Okay, yeah, I suppose when you think about that, obviously we've got to take into account their effective tax-free threshold. So when you're thinking about people retired um, and for a client that's married and eligible for the low-income tax offset as well as the seniors and pensioners tax offset, they're able to earn income uh, outside super of up to around, what is it, $29,700, almost $29,800 without having to pay income tax. So that would need to be taken into account if you if your client is going to invest those, those extra amounts um, and then tossing up whether to put it back into super or just to invest it in their own names. 
that's obviously quite important. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, it's worth taking a look uh, at our article, Effective Tax-Free Income Thresholds, because um, that'll give you an idea of, of the type of income that somebody can earn without paying tax. Now, the, as you said before, this is not the only types of income streams that we need to worry about, is it? It's, it's transition retirement pensions as well as term allocated pensions as well? Yeah, yeah. So looking again at a similar scenario with a $200,000 pension in each case, um, let's look first at the term allocated pensions or TAPs. Um, the required pension payments work a little differently for those ones. For the financial year, they're calculated using the account balance at 1st of July, um, but that's divided by a payment factor that relates to the remaining term. So if we had a $200,000 tap with a remaining term of, say, 11 years, the payment factor that relates to that remaining term is nine. So the pension payment for the upcoming financial year would be $200,000 divided by nine or $22,220 because we always round it to the nearest $10. Mm -hmm. So tap clients in the past several years with this halving of minimums, the way it works for them, it's given them the flexibility to draw down as little as 45% of that calculated amount. So in, in this particular example, that would have been as little as $10,000. So from the 1st of Ju July, the flexibility on the minimum will, will return to the normal level of 90%. So in, mm -hmm. in this particular case, that would bring up the minimum to $20,000. Um, having said that, it only impacted the minimums. The flexibility to take up to 10% more than the calculated amount has remained unchanged throughout the period and won't change um, from the 1st of July either. So even in the case of a TAP, so in your example, you'd be going from payments of $10,000 back up to $20,000 from the 1st of July. Yeah, yeah. If you had gone for the absolute minimum, that, that would be the impact of the change on the 1st of July. Um, so, so lastly, um, transition to retirement pensions. They have the same minimum drawdown rules as regular account-based pensions. So if the member has been taking the minimum pension to date, they will also see an increase in the minimum pension drawdown in the new year. So some important changes for pension payments that will need to be reviewed for clients in the lead up to the end of the year. Okay, moving on to the last topic of the day, which we've already actually covered a little bit, but thought worthwhile recovering in the lead up to 30 June, and that is in relation to the transfer balance cap. So Tim, transfer balance cap is due to increase by a whopping $200,000 on the 1st of July. Yes, certainly is. Um, so as people would be aware, this cap started at $1.6 million when it was introduced back on 1 July 17. And its first increase was to go to $1.7 million uh, back on 1 July 2021. And it's one of the few super thresholds that are, is actually indexed to CPI rather than wages. And as people would be aware, CPI has been running high um, and it certainly was in the year through to December 2022, which was a key measurement date for this. And that really means the general cap will increase by um, quite a large $200,000 to 1.9 from 1, 1 million from 1 July. 
Okay, now there was a little bit of speculation uh, in the industry in the lead up to the federal budget that we thought there's a, there was a risk that the transfer balance cap could potentially get frozen at $1.7 million, but we didn't see that on the night, did we? No, no announcements at all regarding indexation of the cap. So it unless they're going to once again change it between here and, and 1st of July, this is a legislated increase. It will go to $1.9 million unless we get some sort of now what would be considered, I suppose, an unexpected announcement. Exactly, yep. Okay, now we mentioned that this is the general cap which is increasing to $200,000, but clients will have their own personal cap which limits what they can transfer to retirement phase. So how's a person's personal cap determined? Well, it starts off equal to the general cap that we just looked at in the year that a client first commences their first retirement phase income stream. But from there into the future, each time that general cap increases, um, a client's personal cap only gets a proportional part of that indexation. And at a really high level, um, to calculate that, we first look at what is the client's used cap percentage? And that's really their highest ever previous transfer balance account value divided by what their personal cap was at the earliest time that occurs. And we then use that to calculate their unused cap percentage, which is 100% minus that used cap percentage. And that is then the portion of general cap indexation that their personal cap gets. Okay, well, that sounds really quite simple. And for someone who, who commenced their first retirement phase income stream prior to the 1st of July 2021, this is actually the second round of proportional indexation they're going to receive, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So it gets just a bit more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, so look, in many cases, it will be the same percentage or proportion that applies uh, in both of those times. So in those situations, it will be relatively straightforward. Um, but where someone's commenced more than one income stream at different times, then it may mean a different percentage will apply the second time the indexation occurs. So it does get more complicated in those situations. Yeah. Now, we, we kind of laugh there, which which we really shouldn't. This is quite a serious issue, right? Um, these, these proportional indexation rules are really getting potentially quite complicated for people. And and actually, you know, I mentioned in the in the intro there for your section, Tim, that we thought the government may announce a freezing. Now, one, that would be a revenue issue because people get to transfer less money into the tax-free retirement phase. But it, we also had lots of industry associations actually writing in their budget submissions to government, actually, you should freeze this because the, the complexity of these proportional indexation rules just get more and more complicated every time they index. Um, and people are going to get this wrong as a result. So, um, so yeah, we kind of laugh, but it's 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 a really an important issue. Now, getting back to that point, if someone's used all of their cap at any point, then I suppose in that situation, it's a little bit simpler. Their cap gets no further indexation in the future. That's right. Under that proportional index calculation, their unused percentage would be zero. So, no further indexation for them into the future. So thinking about possible caps that a client can have, so if they start their first retirement phase income stream on 1 July 2023, it's simple. Their personal cap is simply going to be the general transfer balance cap that applies at that time, which will be $1.9 million. But if they started their first income stream prior to that, they could potentially have a cap somewhere between one6 and 1.9 by the time we get to the 1st of July. So 
how can an advisor find out what their client's cap actually is? Yeah, I mean, ATO online services through MyGov is really the place where a client's most likely to be able to find out their cap. Um, the ATO currently has, from my understanding, the unused cap percentage and the most recent personal cap available already. Um, but the ATO has also recently indicated it will have the, uh, a client's new personal cap for 2023-24 available from the 11th of July. So that's not too far after 1 July, um, but it is important to ensure that information is current, um, particularly in the case of clients with SMSFs where, you know, transfer balance cap reporting mm. may be received at a later point compared to large funds. We've also, uh, to assist in manually uh, understanding the steps to calculate a client's proportionally indexed cap, we've got a detailed article that, that explains that and discusses some strategies as well. Now, I suppose there's some key strategy considerations concerning the indexation of the general cap on the 1st of July? Yeah, that's right. And so probably a key one, um, given how close we are to, to the indexation time now, where a client can commence a retirement phase income stream now, then potentially choosing to delay that until 1 July or after might, if it's their first income stream, um, it could give them a personal cap of $1.9 million rather than $1.7 million. Or even if it's not their first retirement phase income stream, uh, delaying in that way can lead to a greater level of proportional indexation come 1 July when their personal cap gets indexed. Um, now, delaying in that situation does give up a period of time of tax-free earnings because you're not commencing a pension now, um, mm -hmm. but it's only a month or so between now and 1 July, which you would expect to be a very minor impact compared with the additional cap that they'd gain by doing it. Um, it. It also kind of depends in that consideration whether a client is ever going to need that additional cap that they gain by that strategy. Um, so many clients may not ever need that additional level of indexation, but it is important to take into account not just the client's own superannuation, but also any future death benefit income streams that they may receive which may need to count towards their cap as well. Yeah, at some point in the future. Um, I, I remember when the um, the indexation figure first came out and we knew for a fact that it was going to go to, to $1.9 million on the 1st of July, and that was that was back in February, wasn't it? And so a lot of people were doing the maths to say, oh, well, I can start a pension now and so I get you know all this extra money into the tax-free environment now or I delay until the 1st of July. So five months down the track. And I think we did a little bit of analysis there and I think it was based on some, you know, fairly standard assumptions. What was it, a return of 5 or 6%, Tim, that um, that it was going to take about a three-year payback period by by actually delaying and therefore getting an extra $200,000 into the tax-free retirement phase. The, the time it takes to recoup the tax that you paid because you delayed commencing your retirement phase income stream five months. It was about three years, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. I think we calculated that we were doing it on one March or we yeah. were going to delay into one March. March. Okay, all right. And, and you, you certainly wouldn't say that it is a good strategy to, you know, permanently not commence retirement phase income streams so you can get a higher cap in the future. But what's kind of unique about this situation is, you know, we are fairly close to yeah. the indexation point and it's $200,000 worth of indexation. 
which yeah. makes it a more compelling case relatively to delay. Yeah, so that, that's what I was going to say. Is it's like, you know, all those months ago, it was a three-year kind of payback period. But now when we're only, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, dear listener, um, <laughs> it would be, you know, four or five weeks, maybe even less before we hit that 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 date, so that 1 July date. So it may well be absolutely worth delaying um, if the client's ever going to be anywhere near these, these large figures. Um, now, also... Total super balance threshold. So one of the things that an increase in the general transfer balance cap will change is the total super balance thresholds that determine, if I can say it, determine a client's non-concessional contribution cap. So they're also increasing the from, from the 1st of July, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. They are. So importantly, the non-concessional cap is not changing from 1 July. The standard cap will stay at $110,000. But the total super balance thresholds that determine whether a client gets a non-concessional cap and their access to the bring forward rule, they will change because they're calculated with reference to the general transfer balance cap. So at the moment, for example, you can do a three-year $330,000 bring forward under the non-concessional rules if your previous 30 June total super balance was less than $1.48 million. And at the other end, um, once your total super balance is equal to or greater than $1.7 million, then you're, you don't have any non-concessional cap at all. But due to the increase in that general transfer balance cap from 1 July, each of those key total super balance thresholds are simply going to increase by $200,000. So, for example, um, my non-concessional cap next year will be nil if my total super balance at the previous 30 June is $1.9 million or over. Uh, and I can trigger a three-year $330,000 bring forward period if my previous 30 June total super balance is less than $1.68 million. Okay, now you said there um, that the non-concessional contribution cap of $110,000, that's not increasing. So what that says to me that the concessional cap is also not increasing on the 1st of July because the non-concessional cap is just calculated as four times the concessional cap. That's right. Yeah, okay. Now, okay, so it appears that even though the non-concessional cap isn't increasing, as we just said, this change could, thinking about, allow some clients to have access to a cap or to use a bigger bring-forward period? Yeah, that's right. So if my total super balance at 30 June 2022 was at least $1.7 then I would have no non-concessional cap available in this financial year. But as long as I'm under $1.9 at um, 30 June this year, then it's likely I will have some non-concessional cap available in 23-24. And importantly, that includes someone who might be in the middle of an existing bring forward period. So for example, if a client is in year two of a three-year bring forward period in this financial year, and their total super balance at the previous 30 June was 1.7 million or more, the non-concessional cap for this year would be nil. But next year, they may be able to use the remainder of their bring forward cap as long as they're less than $1.9 million at this coming 30 June. And would there be a case for not making non-concessional contributions this year in order to maximise NCCs next year under the higher total super balance threshold? Look, from our analysis, not really as a general rule. Um, And it also very much does depend in that consideration on how a client's total super balance is going to change with earnings during the year. 
Um, certainly the strategy of making 110,000 in non-concessional contributions this year and not triggering the bring forward rule, but then doing it next year, that can be a valid strategy depending on a client's situation. Um, that includes when a total super balance threshold is either increasing or not increasing. Also potentially making a non-concessional contribution of less than $110,000 right near the end of a financial year uh, can work in order to stay just below an important total super balance threshold, such as $1.68 million from 1 July. But also remember that any non-concessional cap um, delayed and not used in this financial year is permanently lost and can't be carried forward. Okay, I suppose also thinking back to 1 July 2022 when those work test changes went, um, then I remember saying, you know, at the time, you, you know, all your clients between 67 and, and 75, including into up to 28 days after the end of the month, you turned 75. Um, they all potentially can now make non-concessional contributions without needing to worry about satisfying the work test. However, that was very much dependent upon their total super balance. So you might have had clients with balances up and over $1.7 million. So technically, yes, they can make a, a non-concessional contribution without needing to worry about the work test, but their cap would have been zero. So for those clients um, between 67 and 75, with these caps going up by $200,000, potentially they've now got the ability to at least make some non-concessional contribution, either via a super top-up strategy or maybe even benefit themselves by doing a re-contribution strategy or something along those lines, Tim? Yeah, that's right. It's For those clients, it's just important maybe to revisit their strategy and look at whether, given these thresholds increasing, um, is there now an opportunity to either make non-concessionals uh, within their cap where that wasn't the case before or trigger a longer bring-forward period potentially um, given the higher caps? Right. Terrific. All right. Well, I think that pretty much sums it up, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Greg. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventus Investments Limited accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.